listening to the Taming Hinges podcast. Conversations about self-awareness and mental health. We talk about anything and everything on the podcast. Real experiences, real life. Come get triggered. Welcome to another episode of the Taming Hindrances podcast. As always, my name's Phil. I'm the host and creator of the podcast. And today's episode is entitled Content. And uh, not content the noun, but content the verb. So just like I start some of the other podcasts off, most of them, uh, with a dictionary definition, we're going to start this one off just the same way. Uh, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, as I always use, because I like the layout. Content. We're using the adjective and the verb definition today, and we're going to talk about it in uh, in respect to mental health and self-awareness, because I think it's one of those important things to get a baseline. I think a lot of what we do in today's society is tell people, oh, you got to feel great. You got to feel awesome. You got to feel happy. You got to feel on top of the fucking world. You got to kill it. That's not true. It's just not true. And where's the baseline for that? Where is the measurement structure? I've talked about duality before and how duality is really triality, you know, two sides of the same coin. So what's the coin on this one? That's what I'm going to get into. But first, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary uh, defines content, the adjective, or used as an adjective, as contented or satisfied. The better definition here, I think, when we're talking about this is a verb, because we're using it as an action, to be content, to be contented. So... The verb here is to appease the desire of, or the one I like the best, to limit oneself in requirements, desires, or actions. Again, to limit oneself in requirements, desires, or actions. I would define that as balance, right? I would see that in, at least I do see it as being balanced with oneself and Specifically, when we're talking about self-awareness, I think finding what makes you content is a really good place to either start from or to get to, to find out really who you are. What are your needs? What are your wants? What are, what do you require as a human being to survive, to be content, to exist really? I've spent a lot of time in my life not arguing, but not even debating, maybe just discussing the fact that I'm just content. I don't do happy. I don't do sad. I don't do a lot of these extreme emotions, or at least what I call extreme emotions. I do content. I'm just a content person. I find contentedness in, well, quite a few things now, but it wasn't always that way. I used to find contentness in staying home on a Friday night and, you know, watching movies or keeping to myself, maybe studying, um, studying something, something that interests me. Um, you know, it used to be quantum physics for a really long time until I realized quantum physics is just kind of a bunch of bullshit. Not all of it, but what we knew about quantum physics, we knew about in, you know, the early 1900s and it hasn't really changed much since we've had like two developments, you know, the Higgs boson particle and some other stuff. If you want to call those part of the quantum physics, um, repertoire, but, yeah, stuff like that. Just computers were a huge contented thing for me. To be content, you gave me a computer, you let me hang out with it. 
Um, it's why I initially went to school for computers. My um, junior and senior year of high school, I spent completely focused on becoming an IT professional. I didn't go too far with that, but my study into computers was essentially where I learned I shouldn't mix always, you know, something I find as a hobby or something I'm interested in and also something I do for a living. Back then it was a bad mix up for me. Now I'm a little bit more used to it because I find that working is just what makes me content. I'm content to work. I'm not always content with the work I'm doing. Um, I job hop a little bit because I, you know, I'm a bit of a martyr in some cases or I just don't, I, I get stuck and I want new or something along those lines. But all of it has always come back to a feeling of being content. And again, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines that as to limit oneself in requirements, desires, or actions. So when we're thinking about being content, as far as mental health goes, I would say it's that feeling of, yeah, I'm just okay. I'm doing okay. I'm just doing, you know, I'm not great. I'm not awesome. I'm not perfect. I'm not elated. I'm not, you know, I'm none of those extreme things. I'm just okay. Melancholy. I would throw melancholy in there too. Just like the meh. Just, yeah, meh. Cool. I'm fine. I'm right in the middle. And I think it's a good place to be. I, I, I find being content is halfway in between sad and happy. So I'm easily able to pivot to one side or the other. And someone like me who often has social interactions that require themselves to think ahead to what the normal response would be or what the socially acceptable response would be. It's a good place to be right in the middle. So I can pivot one way or the other. I don't, I don't get bothered by death. I don't illness and, you know, hard times aren't things that I, I sympathize with people on, but like, there's not a lot that shakes me up. So often I kind of have to bring myself to the level of the individual I'm talking to that if this is a, a tough subject for them, or if this is a really hard period of time in their life, I need to bring myself to that side of things. You know, I, I, I stay middle road, but maybe, you know, maybe a new job is like super exciting for them, even though they just got fired from another job or, you know, so I have to be like, Oh, that's happy. That's cool. Like, I have to pick or choose which side. And I've done that my entire life. Um, I've always kind of had to, to preemptively decide which way is this going to go and uh, how should I react? Just how I am. But overall, I find being content puts me in the middle ground, which allows me to not have to deal with the ups and downs I think a lot of people put themselves through. And it works for some people. I get that. Everybody's different. I've talked about that multiple times and I talk about how your depression's yours, mine's mine. It's the way we see the world. It's different for everybody. I can't understand yours. You can't understand mine. People got to stop saying, I understand. I think content brings that to the table. I don't know what your content is, nor do you know what mine is, but it's a way that you can find the interplay, the, you know, the middle ground, the middle road, which is something, unfortunately, I think it's thrown to the wayside a lot. I think the idea of just being okay has gotten coerced or corrupted into being, oh, they're not doing okay. And that's not true. Like, I'm okay. I'm fine. Like People here, like, you, people use the word, I'm fine. And they use it in the connotation of a, a slight or a, um, 
I don't know, just like a colloquial way, a, a, a presentation of like, you know, just leave me alone. I'm fine. That's fine, <laughs> but it's not a good representation of what that really means. Being fine and being okay, people often want to pry on that. And you can, that's great, you know, but do it with people who, in my personal opinion, do it with people that you understand more. Don't do it with, you know, coworkers necessarily, or um, I don't know, people specifically like myself. I hate getting asked, how are you? I, I fucking hate that question. I really do. I hate it. You're just asking me to lie to your face because I don't want to have the conversation. And to be honest, I am just fine. I'm just okay. I'm just content. But people don't accept that. And I think it's a little weird that people don't accept the idea of like, they're fine or they're okay. That's great. Good for you. Like you're just doing, you're just chilling. You're doing you. That's amazing. Instead, we want people to be like, I want you to be happy or I want you to be, you know, something else. Why? What, you remember, I hate why questions. So why does someone feel that way? Because this is a subjective argument. So we have to use the why question of what makes it necessary for someone not to just be okay or just be content? Why do we always push people to be amazing, to be happy, to be, you know, celebratory of something? What's the necessity there? The more we do that, we push the extreme of you always have to be happy. So anything other than that is fucking horrible. That's the narrative, right? That's that's the interplay. That's the agenda of wanting someone else to be much better. And trust me, I really do want people to be great. I want them to be happy and excited and to have awesome lives. But it needs to come from a, a normal bias. And remember, two sides to the same coin. If sad's on one side and happy's on the other, the middle ground, the coin itself, is content to be okay to be, by Merriam-Webster's Dictionary's definition, a piece of the desires of, or to limit oneself in requirements, desires, or actions. Content is the way to, like, narrow the field. And I often use the analogy when I talk about it, or I used to more often, when I did talk about it more often, of the roller coaster ride. People love putting themselves on these roller coaster rides of huge highs and elation and then massive lows in, you know, just sad and, and unhappy and just, uh, just the terrible feelings. And that's the measurement structure. You know, if your high was the huge fucking, you know, up the roller coaster, negative gravity, feeling, floating, awesome, we, yay, excitement. The other part of that is the dip is the, Oh, that's a ton of gravity. Oh, compressed, depressed, those types of things. Like, you're going to constantly be in that swing. And if you're in that swing, you need to know how to measure it and cope with it. And not everybody does, nor does everybody see that it's there. So constantly pushing people to that, I just don't agree with. I don't, I don't think that's the best method here. Instead, maybe we could take the middle of the road, the balanced perspective. I remember the universe is constantly seeking balance. That is a universal principle. But the method in which the universe finds balance is asymmetrical. So we don't necessarily need to have massive up, massive down. We can have little up, little up, little up, little up, a little bit of a down. And that might balance it. You know, bad things are going to happen. They happen constantly. And it's oftentimes that the metaphysical world or the you know woo-woo world or 
quote unquote, the spiritual world side of things will say like, oh, it's a challenge or it's a, a way of bettering yourself. And uh, okay, that's fine. But if you're taking that perspective, then so are the fun times. They're also a challenge. They have to be looked, you have to look at them equally. And the asymmetry there is to find how much happiness are you willing to try to gain and what are you willing to pay for it? How much and what? How much do you want and what are you willing to pay for it? That's that's an interchange. That's a, a, a you know, it's a bartering system essentially. All of karma is based on that. The whole, you know, karma being the life long process or multiple lifelong process of gaining karma and dharma being the everyday interplays of that karma those are transactionally done but they're not balanced there's no balance to them so one person's suffering could equal a massive you know boon of some sort and i'm not saying you know oh people have to suffer but if you look at it transactionally which some people would say taking all the fun out of it, it becomes more of a, a, a easier way to understand what content could be. And it, it's a better way to understand the asymmetry of the universe. So if I'm going to have an amazing party, maybe the cleanup's going to suck, you know, but okay. The party was awesome. And you know, the cleanup's not that bad, but like, or you have an amazing party and then like somebody breaks your mom's table, you know, the high school kid story, you know, where, oh shit, you know, somebody broke the coffee table at the party I wasn't supposed to have and then you pay for it. So was the party really worth it or could have you just had a couple friends over, had a great time, nobody broke the table and, you know, it, it equaled out that way. Like you got away with it, but, you know, it wasn't the big rager. I don't quite know how to explain that, but maybe that works. So like think about it in equivalent exchange. If outcome is party, that's the, you know, that's the, what do you want? Or, you know, I'm sorry. How much do you want? You want party. How much party do you want? What are you willing to pay for it? Well, if you want big, huge rager party, the payment might be mom's broken table, right? And that equates to grounded and can't hang on your friends and blah, 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 blah. If you lived in like a normal household, I didn't live in one of those, but I'm just kind of using an anecdotal response here. Other than that, you could have just had, you know, how much do you want? I want party. How much party? Friends over, you know, parents are away. We get to have a little bit of fun, but like nothing crazy. Payment for that might just be the little bit of anxiety you get trying to sneak that past your parents without anybody finding out. Which one are you willing to go with? You know, is the giant rager party worth the punishment or do you accomplish essentially the same thing with less? This is how budgets are built. This is how expectations are set. This is how life is almost, I don't know, measured by this middle ground that you know, it goes one way or the other and it balances back and forth. It's like a teeter totter. What do you want? And well, how much do you want? And what are you willing to pay for it? That's, I mean, that's, that's always the answer. Effort in, effort out. It's a transaction. The more you put into something, typically universe will allow you the dividend 
of how much you get out. That's true for education or educating oneself. The more you educate yourself, the more you can get out of that. It's just compounding by returns. The more you educate yourself about the vocabulary of a structure of a, any, anything, any subject, any system, any of those things, the more you're able to correlate things between those systems or, you know, educational structures, that the more you can start pulling out of it, the quicker you can start pulling out of it. There's always a third piece. Remember, duality and triality. So if there's always a third piece, then we have to look at what's the third piece of the situation. And I call it content. It's the balance of the equation. If you want to be happy, at some point you're going to have to be sad because without being sad, you can't understand happy. And without being happy, you'll never understand sad. So the balance piece there is the content and the content is the transaction. It's the balance of the two things. How much happy do you want and what amount of sad are you willing to pay for it? Vice versa, it could go the other way. How much sad do you want and how much happy and what amount of happy are you willing to pay for that? This is the content argument. And there's a lot to be found there. So essentially you're working in a set range and then eventually you can move that range. You know, if you're able to be content with a, just a steady job, pay your rent, maybe sushi lunch once in a while. That's what I was used to be content with. You can then use that to create a good baseline for moving that content structure. And the smart thing to do once you learn that system is like, don't move the content structure to, okay, I got a steady paying job of paying my rent. You know, I can afford to fix the car if something goes wrong. I got a couple bucks in the bank. I have sushi lunch when I want it. You don't move that content post to, woo, mansion, can't afford anything, but I feel great. No, 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 you don't do that. You move it a little farther ahead of, oh, maybe a slightly bigger place or maybe my own place compared to renting. You know, you maybe get a mortgage, you buy a house, you get a little structure there, or, you know, you get a dishwasher instead of having to wash your own, like little pieces that make content a little bit more content, but they're not shaking up the whole system. I've used this just about my entire life. There was a point in time where I was working extreme to extreme to extreme. I think I've talked about, and it just wasn't working. And I could see it. I could see the binge and then the you know opposite. And I just narrowed the field. And I learned that that field, that range is what content is. It is, remember going back to our definition here, to limit oneself in requirements, desires, or actions to appease the desires of. If you look at Merriam-Webster's dictionary, you look at the um, definition for content as a verb. The second definition is to limit oneself in requirements, desires, or actions. And the first is to appease the desires of. So let's put them together. I'm going to limit my requirements and my desires and the actions I take to do those to get that in order to appease those desires. I'm just going to make the desires work inside of the range that I can afford as far as emotional transactions go. This gives us a great base level of measurement or even a base level of understanding for how things are going, which direction your life is you know, happening. The Does the family warrant the you know, transaction? 
and I'm not trying to make everything transactional here, but sometimes it takes logic and reason at that level to get a good understanding in which to work from. And the sovereign idea of an individual needs to make sure that that transaction is beneficial to themselves in some way or another. Because if it's not, you shouldn't go along with the transaction. There should always be effort in, effort out. Has to be a balanced organization. Now, again, asymmetry, the balance might go one way or the other. But if you're constantly putting in emotional payments to the family and you're getting nothing out of it in return, is it worth it? Is that, you know, worth your time? Or should you tell the family just to kind of chill a little bit or just remove yourself from the situation? I did that. I struggled for a, a long time in my teenage years of still having to put effort into the family stuff and the misery I was getting out of it, but still feeling responsible and required to continue to do that because at some level, maybe they had put in the same amount and like maybe I caused them misery. So like it was all equivalating. And then I just realized that, you know what? The answer for myself was to eliminate the misery. The misery my family was causing me, the lies, the deceit, the backstabbing, the they said, they said, the you should be on our side, no, you should be on our side, the oh, you know, you owe us this, the all of that caused so much misery that it fed the idea that I wanted to kill myself. It was just like, why the, why the fuck am I, if they're so unhappy with me in cases and times, and all I am is just a transactional piece. Remember, I'm going to fight against transactions while also talking about them at the same time. The transactions weren't equal. It was just debt, debt across the board, side to side, kind of like the financial situation we live in today. But there was no, there was no good. There was no balance. It was simply no one wanted to really deal with this, but no one was willing to say with that. And although I'm sure on some sides, I broke all of the contextual rules, contextual rules of their understanding of family. You just deal with it or something along those lines. It wasn't worth it for anybody because at some point in time, I don't know if they'll ever have this thought and you know, I, I, we're never going to have the conversation, but at some point in time, my misery was going to turn into resentment and it, it had started to turn into resentment and that resentment will turn into animosity and animosity will breed action. And that action is typically revenge in some form or another. It would have come out and there would have been pain and suffering due to that. I would have caused those individuals pain and suffering. I would have found a way. I would have gotten to the point where either I was going to get physically abusive because my emotional states would have warranted me hitting someone. And I would have picked and chose that moment very carefully to make a point as a martyr that I am. Or it had in the past represented itself as verbal abuse. You know, I had had long drag out verbal arguments with my mother. I'd had long drag out verbal arguments toe to toe with my brother. I was building that contextually to have it with my father, which would have ended probably with a physical altercation. I had just completely stopped verbal discussion with some of my grandparents because of their viewpoints on the world. And I didn't agree with them. And just these things built and built and built this animosity idea that was not content. There was no contentness. There was no middle ground. 
Instead, instead of having a more narrow idea of the requirements necessary for the family interactions to continue, it had become an extreme side of things. Either we were going to be happy, which was a lie, or we were going to fight, and that was going to become the new happiness. And I watched this build inside of myself, and my ultimate decision was, it's not worth either person's misery. I will hurt them less by just walking away. Because I know I'm not in the right here. I walked away. It was my choice, my decision. I made it. I did it. And I'm sure they got hurt over that. I find that to have been, in my eyes, a better transaction in the measurement system of, you know, being content than what I could have done. I could have called people out on sexual abuse. I could have ruined lives. I could have, you know, just broken their entire idea of their family unit and then walked away. I could have individually attacked them. I could have told them truth that they never would have recognized and never will. I could have done all those things. I could have made it so much worse for everybody involved, including myself. I felt it was best not to. It didn't warrant that. It was simply and easy enough to walk away, to just walk away. And sometimes I think that's the road that's never taken. That road is called content. Content's not happy. It's not sad either. It's just okay. It's just fine. It's just right in the middle. And yeah, was there some sadness? I'm sure. Were some people probably secretly just like, oh, finally, we don't have to deal with this anymore. We can all move on. Yeah, I imagine that happened too. But this shit takes years and it's never going to equal. It's never going to be, it's going to be imbalanced, but it's never going to be equal on one side or the other. The interplay comes around in the end where, you know, as far as my parents are concerned, they don't have me as a support structure when they get older. I'm not going to be there to help them out when they're old and, you know, they need someone to take care of them. I'm not that person. Also, they get to save all the money now for, you know, not dealing with me and myself. Emotionally, financially, all of it. So the transaction is eliminate me from the board and I'm going to eliminate you from the board and we're just not going to play the game anymore. Again, my decision. Was it the right one? Who knows? I don't know. Does it feel okay in the end for me to have made that decision? Yeah. I'm still here. I didn't kill myself. So obviously it took that, that whole situation got eliminated. So I didn't have to deal with that emotionally and the physical harm that I was doing to myself due to the whole situation. The mental anguish of not having a successful family life was tough to deal with in the long run, but I think I've adjusted from it. So there's always going to be these transactional pieces. It all comes down to that idea of content though. I'm content with that answer. I had a moment when I moved into my condo. It was the first home I ever bought. Um, it was the first time I, you know, first time I really like made a big adult move. You know, I had been renting for a long time. I had done all of these things. I had been moving the content posts and 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 fine tuning everything. And then I decided, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm at the point where I can purchase my own home. And by purchase, I mean, I got a mortgage and, you know, the bank owns it and I rent it from the bank, but I get, I have control over the domicile for the most part. 
probably the second or third night there, I, I kind of broke down and I realized part of the transaction that I had made, you remember hindsight's 2020. So I didn't, didn't necessarily, I had picked up on this at the time, but the emotional weight was the transaction I had made of walking away from my family meant and also at the same time, not making very many close friends or having close relationships, just because that's just how I am as a person, meant I had no one to share this with. I was at that point utterly alone. There was no one. You know, I had some people help me move in, friends of mine, you know, they were good guys. And, but I wasn't like, I'm not the type of person to call them and be like, hey, come hang out at my house. I'm just not that type of person. So when I, you know, got a bottle of wine to celebrate two glasses in, I realized there's no one to celebrate with. I had finally made it. I had finally moved myself out of having lived in my own, in my car and been homeless for nine months to getting a a steady, good job that paid well that I could afford a home. And, And look, like I knew at this point, I'm not the normal, you know, case study here. I had somehow elevated myself out of where I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be just another, you know, drug addict fucking fuck up who had an alcohol problem and, you know, just lived a shitty life for the rest of their life. That, that was the trajectory I was on. Somehow I had elevated myself out of this. And the moment I realized that I had, that I, I looked at all the finances and I realized, holy shit, I can actually afford this place. It's mine. I can lock the doors and not have to worry about, you know, like somebody breaking in or even if they did, like not like I had anything to steal, but like I was secure in my own home and I didn't have to worry about outside influences. This was mine. I was finally self-sustained. I had finally done it. At the same time, I had to realize, oh, there's no one to celebrate this with. There's no pat on the back from a dad. Good job, son. Well done. There's no way to go, honey, from a mom and, you know, a hug and a, a, a fucking, I don't know, casserole, you know, they're, they're a bottle of wine. Like that was not going to happen. I had left that behind. So there was no good on you, kid. That was never going to occur. Never going to get that. It's never going to happen. So as much as the moment of celebration of having finally kind of made it. There was the sourness of, Oh, no one cares. There's no one here to like, there's no attaboy. There's no, you know, there was, there was none of that. Did I need it? I guess some part of me was still in hope that that would be a thing. But the reality of it was the next day I woke up and I was like, yeah, whatever. It just disappeared. It was just a weight off my shoulder. I'd finally realized that, hey, I did make it. And there was some respect to the idea that I'd made it on my own. And that, no, I didn't need anyone here to celebrate this with. That's content. It's not great. It's not bad. It's just right in the middle. It's the middle of the road. And to be honest, for some people, I think it's a perfect place to be. It's a safe place to be. Knowing that there is no assurity knowing that there is no such thing as a safe space. 
but one can make their domicile or make that, make their daily life a little more safe for them or, or a little bit more comfortable for them. You know, that idea that I started with, with the, you know, sushi lunch when I wanted it. Yeah, not everybody's into sushi, but like just that idea of, oh, I can afford to treat myself just a little bit. That's a financial assurity that, you know, you can work to in the world, in the realm of contentness. And it's something we don't really talk about, or at least I don't see talked about in the world of self-awareness and mental health. I don't see people saying like, hey, like what makes you content and how do you get there? People are always like, oh, I want to be a fucking Instagram millionaire and I want a fucking jet. And it's all lies. It's all bullshit. You want to look at real self-awareness. You want to look at real mental health structures. It's, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. It's the nine to five or 10 to six, whatever it is the go to work, come home, put on the gym shorts, turn the world off for a little bit, watch a movie, but like get to order pizza when you want to. It's the, it's the middle ground. That's real self-awareness and mental health. Sometimes you got to work through a shitty job to get where you, you know, you want to be the adage I used to get to where I'm at today was you get what you need, not what you want. And I think that wraps up contentness very well. You get what you need, not what you want. And a lot of people mistake needs and wants. A need is a necessity. It's an absolute have to have this or it's all over essentially the need I had, which allowed me to work umpteen jobs, you know, 70, 80, 90 hour weeks was I need to pay rent and I need to get out of the situation of living in my car. I needed that. Like in order to survive, I needed to get out of living in my car and get an apartment. That was a necessity. I needed a mailing address for some things too. So like that was a necessity of mine. So I worked the answer there. The need was I need income. And I needed more income than just a normal, you know, bullshit job more than, you know, I needed more income than $10 an hour for 40 hours a week. I needed either $15 an hour for 40 hours a week, or I needed 10, $12 an hour for X. You know, these aren't the numbers I was working with at the time, but I needed more than just a 40 hour a week paycheck. That didn't, that didn't equate to me having sushi lunch when I wanted to, having a nice place to sleep, you know, in a warm, cozy bed. That's not what the equation was. The equation was, oh, okay, I need to work more, more jobs to make more money to, one, keep the car running to keep getting to those jobs and then to get an apartment, which, and I got lucky. I got big breaks along the way. I had two individuals give me an opportunity that I would argue in the end changed my life. Two individuals who owned a pizza shop and a bar around where I was living gave me a shot. And there's another individual who got me the job, got me the interview. Cause that's what it takes sometimes. You know, um, this guy, Nick put his name on me. He said, yeah, like, Hey, I know this kid's brother. They got along. I know this kid seems like a good kid, you know? So I showed up to an interview. Hey, can you do short order work? Sure. I work in a restaurant. Like I can figure it out. So that was like the first break. And then the second break there was 
the owners of this particular, this was a bar that I was going to go work at also owned a pizza shop, but they looked at me and they went, what do you need? I said, uh, I really need a place to live and I need as many hours as you're willing to give me. And their answer was, you can work as much as you want. That was their answer to me. Their answer was, we'll give you a shot, kid. If you think you can work, we'll put you to the test. And they did. I worked 60, 70 hour weeks for them. It was amazing. They took good, good care of me. They looked the other way when I, you know, snuck a slice of pizza. They looked the other way when I made myself a hoagie or, you know, they did a lot for me. They also gave me a, a, I rented a, a studio apartment from them or an efficiency apartment, I should say. They gave me not only a place to live, but they made me earn it. Like I didn't get to just, you know, live there. They gave me the hours I needed to pay the rent at the location I was renting. And they assured me of that. They assured me I would make rent. That was huge. That was probably one of the emotional, most emotional moments I had had up to that date of, you know, being on my own as an adult or adulting was to have these two individuals say, yeah, sure, you can rent a room and we'll make sure you can pay for it. All you got to do is show up and work. So I did. Showed up and worked. And then I just worked more and more and more. And they changed my life. I literally would probably be dead if it wasn't for those two individuals. Oh, three, if I include the person that got me the interview. It gave me a shot. It let me work. So I worked. So I did what I needed to do to get what I needed. And then I started to want things. So I worked towards my wants. But it took nearly five years to get from where I wanted to be to get to where to get to where I needed to be to get to where I wanted to be. Then I could make different moves. So I, I believe content has a lot to do with you get what you need, not what you want. That's not to say don't dream, don't want. No, just be realistic in asking yourself, what is it you need? Do you need to pay rent? Do you need to pay the mortgage? Do you need to fix the car? Do you? What do you need? Do you need to be able to grab pizza once a month or once a week to make yourself, you know, just feel better? Do you need to maybe work out to not feel as fat and, you know, that'll make you feel better? What's the need? Because if it's a need, you got to get it. You, you, that's the motivation. That's how you turn a, That's how you turn content into motivation. You figure out what the need is and then you fill the need by doing whatever's required because you get what you need. If it's a need, you'll get it. Nearly everyone in history has used that as a motivational tool. They just don't talk about it that way. Hunter gatherers back in, you know, ancient civilization of humanity needed to go hunt food to live. That's what the entire animal kingdom is based off of is the necessity for food to live. Well, we're humans and we need a little bit more technology than that because we don't produce enough body heat to keep ourselves warm. We don't have fur. I mean, I'm fuzzy faced, but that's not enough to keep me warm in Arctic temperatures. So we need food, shelter, and water, right? That's that's the things we need to live as, as, as humans. We need food, shelter, and water. Shelter includes fire to keep us warm or to keep us out of the rain and weather. Food, because we need it to produce ATP to do actions of all sorts of stuff. You even need ATP to do digestion. So, like, you need food to digest food. Then, on that same realm, we need water, because water is an essential ingredient to life on this planet. 
So you, you do what you knew, you do what you need to do to get what you need. Food, shelter, and water. It's a good place to start. Then you can start adding in wants. You can't start with wants though. You can't say, I want a PS5. That's great. A lot of people want PS5s. Can you afford it? Do you really need it? Or would it be a better option to take the same savings idea of maybe just not going to Starbucks as much because do you really need Starbucks and take that money and then apply it to a savings account that gives you the cushion of $1,000, $2,000 so that when the car breaks down next, you can pay that without having to worry about it. And then you don't have the mental anguish of all of it. That's what a budget really is. And people want to make budgeting seem like this really hard thing to do. It's not. It's needs and wants. You don't get what you want. You get what you need. Once you have what you need, if that need included, hey, you need to have $2,000 in the bank as a cushion, you know, for when shit goes bad. After that, you might to get to celebrate that idea with gaining a want. Maybe, you know, you check off the PS5. Maybe you, you know, check off the Starbucks runs again because you've, you've gotten enough of an income or you took up a second job or something along those lines. You get what you need, not what you want. It's a big conversation to have with yourself. What are your needs? Start with, start with food, shelter, and water. That's my recommendation. How do you get food, shelter, and water? Luckily, in today's society, shelter typically comes with water. It's typically included in the rent unless you pay your own utilities, which then you have to kind of add that in, but it's always a negotiation. Need food, shelter, and water. Start there. Then add in ones. And then you can start doing a tool. You can do a dual fold idea. You can use needs to present contentness and then you can use contentness as motivation. And then you can also use wants as motivations. Maybe you need more of your wants. Maybe you need to get more wants. That's a whole process you can go through. It takes a while to get there. Remember, I, I always say it's about five years to get where you need to be to get to, to another five years to get where you want to be. But that's another process. You can use that wants to slog through the motivation of getting what you need. Because that motivation to get what you need might only get you so far. It's tough. It's not an easy world we live in. So when you need to go to work, that work sucks. It's a shitty job. Or maybe one of the two jobs you had to get is shitty and you have to deal with that anyway. Maybe your full-time job is like a fucking just disaster and you fucking hate it. But you need to because it's your full-time job and it, you know it's what your health care is and, you know, associated with. It's a complicated world. I get it. You know, some of this shit gets it gets crappy because it's so complicated, but then you take up the part-time job because you need more money and that's okay, but it's not great, but it doesn't really make up for the crappy full-time job. So you're just miserable all the time, but you need to do those things. So you start to add in the need for a want as motivation. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe the part-time job's not so bad because it's going to get me what I want. It's going to get me somewhere better. Maybe it gets me more experience to, you know, and again, remember I, I consider education a job. So if it is courses at a, a, a college, which look, we all know how I feel about academia, but if that betters your life, education's always, you always get more out of education than you put into it. That's just how it works. It's, it's, it's a weird universal law of knowledge and wisdom. The more wisdom you gain, the more you're going to get out of it. 
Knowledge isn't exactly intelligence. Knowledge is just knowing the answer to a question. Wisdom is knowing where to find it. So if you can educate yourself to the vocabulary of things, you can have better conversations to be more wise when it comes to any subject or system. So it's always good to put time and effort and money into education. You'll get things out of it as long as you're smart about it, which requires you to weigh the needs and wants there. Do you need a bachelor's degree? Do you? Do you need a bachelor's degree? Or do you just need an associate? So you just need to get to there and then you can work on the bachelor's degree later. Do you need a master's degree? Or will the bachelor's, you know, what are the steps of the process for the needs and wants? Give it five years. Where's it going to get you? Do you need to pick up that part-time job? Maybe you like your full-time job, but it's just, it's just a little bit not enough. So you need to pick up that part-time job and that's the one that sucks. Okay, well, how do you go about that? My recommendation is find a part-time job that either is going to is going to have a perk. All part-time jobs should have a perk. That perk is either going to be you're gaining more experience and education in the field or the system in which you want to move into, or it has another perk that makes your life cheaper or easier. Perks for me, living out of my car, had a job that allowed me to shower be that a hose at a landscaping job or, uh, you know, grab a shower at the country club if I really needed to, or, you know, a boss that kind of knew my situation and would look the other way when I was like, Hey, you're gonna, you know, like hop in the shower at this, you know, place we're cleaning out. Um, <laughs> just different stupid shit like that. Um, or I had a boss once who had a YMCA, um, membership and it was a family membership and I just got listed as family somehow. Who knew how you could do that? You know, oh, he's just a cousin or something. And back then you could negotiate things. So they would look the other way. Stupid stuff like that. Like it came with a perk. Restaurants, great perk for me. Food for free. Food for effort in essentially. I didn't have to worry about like, you know, working at a pizza shop. You can essentially eat as much pizza as you want within, you know, limits. You know, you're not going to eat a whole pie that day. But like if you really love pizza and you work at a pizza shop, no one scoffs at you eating two slices of pizza because it's cheaper than eating fucking chicken franchise. Like, or, you know, if you eat a hoagie, it's cheaper than you eating, you know, something else. So like you eat the cheap stuff and you get satiated that way. Every part-time job should have perks in that methodology. But again, we're going back to content. Those perks might equal parts of your needs. So it's an easier way to fill it because you're also getting paid at the same time. There's all different ways to work these things in and out and weave them together. It always goes back to content. You get what you need, not what you want. But content is also a motivator. It's it's generally an understanding. Um, I suppose if you wanted to look at it in a objective method, because a lot of this has been subjective, in an objective method, content, in my definition, would be a base level of measurement or understanding for one to feel or be okay. And that way you can apply it to physical needs and, you know, physical needs and wants. You can apply it to emotional needs and wants, and you can find, you can apply it to spiritual needs and wants if you really wanted to. You could apply it to each of the health bodies, as I've talked about before. You have the, the physical human self, you know, just the body, and then you have the mind, and then you have the other. Um, Content in the body and the mind are, are two different things. Your body's content with food, welter, food, water, and shelter. 
body's content. The quality of that food, shelter, and water will make it more content, you know, if you're getting optimum nutrition and these types of things. But it just it generally needs food, shelter, and water to be content. The mind, on the other hand, it's a little bit more complicated. It's like, you know, what is your requirements for contentness as far as entertainment goes, as far as fulfillment in, you know, your life and you know, those types of things. I'm not here to tell you, be awesome, achieve amazing things, be great. I'm here to tell you to think about, because that's all I'm ever trying to do is make people think. And I'm just an idiot on the idiot on the internet that somebody allowed to make a podcast, but I mean, you can really, anybody can do that. So take everything I, I say with a grain of salt. I'm not a professional, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist. I have no professional opinion whatsoever. This isn't even advice. I just want people to think about these things. And I want you to think about it outside of that world of be amazing, do amazing things. It's not wrong. It's just too much on one side. Where's the, where's the balance? The balance of that is fucking suffering. That's, that's the biggest problem with, well, not the biggest problem. There's a lot of problems with pyramid schemes, but the pyramid scheme idea preys upon that mindset of, yeah, you're going to get the Cadillac. You're going to get the, you know, whatever the fucking thing is that they're always trying to be like, yeah, the highest gross earners and you can make thousands of dollars. And the preying upon that idea of to get something so extraordinary, but they never talk about how to balance that out the fucking over your friends by getting them involved and, you know, the suffering of the people at the bottom to make the pyramid. People have to put in money for them to get more money. People have to put in effort for them to get more money. Most corporations can be seen as that. That those at the bottom make the ones at the top. And in my eyes, that's an unbalanced process. It's an unbalanced product. So when someone in a motivational sense says, you're going to get amazing results and you know, you're going to feel great all the time and you're gonna be happy and elated. I don't agree with it. That's why I don't agree with unconditional love because there's no such thing as a non-transactorial idea of love. It cannot be by definition. I don't believe love can be unconditional. It must require conditions or it's not balanced. And if it's not balanced, mm, it's not healthy. Not saying don't love anyone or don't have love or feel those things. Unconditional love, though, I think there would be a better way to describe that if we really looked at it and tried. So I struggle with that idea when people are always like love and light and those types of things. It's not that they're wrong. But there's balance to that. Love and light, their balance to that is hatred and darkness. Those are the two. So again, back to the transaction. How much are you? How much do you want? And what are you willing to pay for it? bring that a step back in the realm of content, how much do you need? What do you, what do you, what do you have to pay for that essentially? Cause you get what you need, not what you want. So what do you need? What do you have to pay to get there? And if you keep that in a good balance structure, remember it's going to be asymmetrical one way or the other, given the day, given the month, given the year. If you, if you can keep control of that, you can keep control of your self-awareness and your mental health space. I also think you could build more self-awareness from it and the mental health will come along with that. The more I tried to push towards a world of, and the only thing I can do here is be a subjective and talk about myself and my experience 
um, which is something I, I try not to do too often, but I, I do do often. And in this particular episode, I've done it the entire time. So if it's not something you're into, I apologize. But this is one of those ones you just have to take it with the subjectivity. And the subjectivity here, with my own experiences, I spent a lot of time trying to listen to that idea of be happy, feel good, just all of that. And it doesn't work. Because the harder you push for that, the more you create the wake. The faster a boat travels through water, the bigger the wake behind them. And the wake will swallow you whole if you get stuck in it. That's the whole idea of a sinking ship. The danger of a sinking ship isn't that the boat is sinking. It's the volume of the boat once it crests underneath the water. Because the rip current that it's going to create going down sinking will drag you down with it. That's the biggest danger of a sinking boat. And if you're on a sinking boat, the best thing you can do is get off that fucking boat as quickly as possible and swim away. You know, even if it's shark infested waters, because the rip current of that boat sinking is the danger. It's that boat is going to drag the current down with it. And you'll never see it. You'll just get stuck in it. And then it becomes like an under underwater whirlpool that just pulls you down with it. And no matter how, how hard you swim against it, if you're not an amazing swimmer and swim up and away, it's just going to pull you down. And you're going to drown. That's a huge danger of a sinking boat. So the, the wake of a boat traveling through the water is the analogy I use for people who like me, maybe who struggle with trying to attain that idea of be happy, feel great have that experience. It's not, it doesn't work for me because it's so easy not to attain that. Instead, what works for me and I think would work for many others, or at least I think would work for everybody because if you start there, you can easily go to that happy side if you really want to. But you can easily go to the sad side. Remember, it's right in the middle. The middle road theory, the being content, curving one's expectations, getting what you need, not what you want, but getting what you need. I think those give us a better methodology for moving forward. You know, does the boat need to be going a million miles an hour or can it just chill? You know, can it just be a leisurely cruise? Do you need to race through traffic or can you just leave five minutes early? These types of things. When we curve the expectation, it works on both sides because content is the coin. And when you work with the coin instead of each individual side, that's how you build wealth. If you're playing the game of a coin toss, heads or tails, you're always going to lose because that's how statistics work. But you're also going to lose because all you're doing is flipping a coin. When if you start to understand the coin and you collect more coins, now you become wealthy. When you're gambling with that 50, 50, 50% of the time, statistically, it's going to be, it's going to be sad. And 50% of the time it's going to be happy. That's objective. The problem is the subjective of what's the equivalent happy and what's the equivalent sad. Cause all you're doing is flipping a coin. You're not 
you're not declaring measurement structures on the flip. Oftentimes, actually, what's happening in a gambling situation when we say heads or tails is the equation isn't equal. The idea of having a having a gambling situation is there's odds. And we play the odds to our favor. The house in a casino plays the odds to their favor. You, there's always going to be more losers than winners the way they set it up. And they the risk management there is to make sure the winners win less then the losers lose because that way they make money. But people aren't chasing that idea. They're chasing the win and they want the win to be huge. So they stop paying attention to the little losses. Oh, it's only 20 bucks. I'm going to win a thousand. My next one, I'm going to win a thousand. And that's the gambler mindset that ends up with devastation. The same thing happens with those individuals, in my personal opinion, who seek out the coping mechanism to deal with all the other things. I'm only going to be a little weight to work because I drank last night and I didn't get up on time. Oh, I can have another beer. Yeah. What's, what's another half hour of sleep? And then they wake up groggy and they're, they're late five minutes. And so they're chasing the, the feeling of, fuck it. I'm just, you know, fuck it. I'm going to do me. I'm going to, I'm going to drink a little bit more. I'm going to get high or they're chasing that thinking that the equation is in their favor. It's not, I'm only five minutes late. I'm only 10 minutes late. Not understanding that the macrocosm there is the big picture is if you get high and go to work, your manager notices. If you show up drunk or late because you got drunk, your manager notices and eventually maybe you get fired. Or your job just gets shitty because they just keep putting the crappy things on you to do. And then you keep blaming everyone else, not realizing that you're the problem. You're not doing what's expected of you, so you're not going to get what you need. You've broken the equation. That's the gambler mindset of flipping that coin. It's much better to understand the coin itself. In everything that involves duality, which is actually triality, it's much better to understand the coin. That is true wisdom. Knowledge is knowing the answer to a question. That's 50-50. That's heads or tails. Flip a coin. It's going to be heads or tails. Having the knowledge of that is great. Having the wisdom of the coin is so much better. Wisdom is knowing where to find the answer, not needing to flip the coin, having the coin, being able to take the coin out of the equation. You know, when it comes down to happiness or sadness, I'm not going to flip a coin and figure it out. I'm going to understand my emotional state, my mental health, and have the self-awareness to not flip the coin. I'm going to take that coin and put it in my pocket. And then every time I get to one of those transactions, I'm going to take the coin, I'm going to put it in my pocket. And that's how you build wealth, both emotionally and monetary value. You build wealth with not having to gamble. All day traders who are successful, and there's not a lot of them, day trading is not a successful endeavor for most people. Day trading is gambling. It's trying to be the biggest winner and mitigate all your losses. Any successful day trader, and again, there's not a lot of them, don't advocate for day trading. This isn't financial advice though, because I'm not a professional. Those who day trade or just trade in general are playing a game of mitigating their losses, just like the house in a casino is mitigating their losses because all you need to do is win bigger than you lost and you're considered successful. It can be a dollar. If you day traded a hundred dollars every day, 
And by the end of it, you made a dollar, you're technically a winner. But what could have you been doing with all that time and all that effort? Was it worth it? What would have happened if you would have put in a dollar and waited a month and then, then cashed out? That's long. That's what they consider swing trading, but it's going to be longer than that because of taxes. And again, this isn't, I'm just using an analogy here. This is not advice. That mentality is short-sighted. And yeah, a lot of people warn against that. But what does it really mean when people tell you, like, don't be short-sighted? That's needs and wants. What do you need to do? You might need to put that $100 in the bank. And no, interest rates are abysmal. So no, it's not going to make you any money. But it might buy you the security that when you get that flat tire, your losses of not being able to go to work are mitigated. That's that's risk-reward profiling. That's loss mitigation. That's the objective objective way of looking at content when I talk about it in transactional matters. Sometimes you have to take the emotions out. And it's hard. It's not easy. Maybe that's what you need to learn how to do. Maybe you need to learn to take the emotional steps out of the process because it would get you better decisions. I'm not advocating for people to be emotionless. Remember, Stoics aren't emotionless people. They use logic and reason to work through the emotions. So they come across as being kind of emotionless. It's not that they didn't feel it. We're still humans, mostly. You know, if you feel emotion, that's fine. It's what you do with it that matters. So middle of the road is a great place to be. When I studied martial arts, actual martial arts, not as a martialist. Remember, I've said before many times, I'm a martialist, I'm not a martial artist. One of my biggest practices in martial arts was Tai Chi. And Tai Chi is one of the things that actually moved me into being a martialist. But in my Tai Chi practice, I learned that there are all these different events. And they're all linked to your breathing. When we talk about martial situations and we talk about Tai Chi, but there's this idea of principles and movement. But one of the ideas behind Tai Chi movement is two hands, one foot. So every time two hands move, one foot will move always. That's just how Tai Chi flows. Before that situation, though, there's breathing. And the breath can actually go either way. It's something that's not discussed in Tai Chi very often, but the breath can go either way. There's actually many different ways to breathe during Tai Chi, but typically most people are taught exhale, hands move. If hands move, foot moves, right? Two hands, one foot. So on the exhale, the hands are moving. As two hands move, one foot moves. That's a typical breathing stature. As two hands come to close to the body, maybe the in-breath, as they go away from the body, exhale. You can reverse that. That's totally fine. But before all of it, you learn, oh, wait a minute, breathing. You can do Tai Chi sitting in a chair and not move. You simply have to do the meditation because Tai Chi is moving meditation of what would the physical action be to think about that as process and then to do the correct breathing thereof for the outcome you want. And that's one of the ways I learned the difference between needs and wants. An individual may want to move, but not be able to. So we sit them in a chair and we let them do Tai Chi sitting down. 
and I'm convinced to this day I never got to experience it. But if I showed an individual who had extreme limited mobility, maybe even, you know, dare I say, someone who suffered a spinal injury and, you know, has no use of their limbs. If I showed them Tai Chi in a respectful manner, what the movements would look like, their brain is able to process those movements. This is okay. Okay. This is what would happen. And if I taught them the breathing that goes along with it, I believe they can get the same outcome out of Tai Chi as someone who's actually able to do all sorts of flips and tricks and stuff. And that's where I learned this idea of content. That I knew no matter what happened, I could do Tai Chi. It's something I've actually never discussed before with people, but I have two major things that typically occur or used to occur when I was in a state in which I had to fear myself. When my suicidal tendencies were so great that I was in what I would consider an event episode where I was either going to do myself harm or if I lost control, I was probably going to kill myself. I put structures in place to best deal with that as much as I could. When I was practicing martial arts, one of those things to do was to do Tai Chi because it was a moving meditation. Separate to that, I knew even if I had to tie myself down to keep myself from hurting myself, I could do Tai Chi. Because the other option I used to use was I would go to the bar because if I drank, I needed to drink around other people because I didn't like to keep alcohol at home because I knew if I drank at home by myself, there was a good chance I'd kill myself. I would lose the inhibition to fight that, that thought process off, that I would spiral down into a, a deeper, darker place and I wouldn't be able to come back from it. I replaced that eventually with my Tai Chi practice because I could also use my Tai Chi practice to cause myself physical harm at the same point. I could exhaust myself. Ask a Tai Chi practitioner to do Tai Chi fast. It's not easy. It is exhaustive. You know, Tai Chi is typically this very slow breathing process. Do it fast, which is actually combative Tai Chi. And I've, I've done both the meditation health practice of Tai Chi. And I've also used Tai Chi as a combative method. It's a very effective combative method. It's a brutal system of, of combat if used in that method. Tai Chi showed me balance. And I learned balance at that point was not asymmetrical. Well, it was asymmetrical. It was not, you know, there was no symmetry to this idea of balance, both physically and mentally at the same time. I could use Tai Chi in what people would consider a, a, a weird methodology to do it fast and explosively to, to add all these other different energies you learn about to exhaust the body. And I could do that in a methodology that would eventually hurt me so that I, I would feel some sort of necessary of pain to stop myself from going farther down the rabbit hole. That's one of the things Tai Chi taught me. So at that point, I realized my martial arts practice, the arts part of it, 
became a necessity for who I was. So I did it constantly. I did it so much that I broke my body down pretty badly. But it's what I needed at that time. I needed to go to martial arts class. I found every possible way. At one point, my car broke down and I had to walk to class. And it was not a short walk. <laughs> it was 45 minutes to an hour just to walk there. Maybe more. It might have been, might have been more than an hour. And not that, you know, people don't go for those types of walks, but like walk there and back no matter what the weather was and walk there, do high level martial arts and forms. And cause you know, a lot of it was like a black belt level class and beat the shit out of ourselves and then walk home afterwards. Kind of sucked, but it was good for me. That was my necessities. Like I needed to go. I needed to be there. I needed to do it. I needed to do that practice at home too. And that's, you know, I've recently looked back at some of the videos of myself and I was like, wow, man, I wasn't as bad as I thought it was. I wasn't great. I wasn't that bad. I was pretty good. That kept me in a good mindset. Kept me in. That was my content. My content was go to martial arts and do martial arts. Go to the studio and do martial arts. That was my content. I blo- as soon as I walked through the door there, everything disappeared. That was the rule when you walked in. Just you left the outside world got left behind. And that's what I needed. I needed not a safe space. It wasn't safe. We got our asses kicked. I needed a place to go that represented the balance to all the craziness that was the outside world to me. That was the martial arts studio. That's, that was my need and I got it. I got what I needed. Somehow the universe provided that to me because I didn't, it didn't cost me a lot. My teacher, my, my seafood was very nice to keep me at a low rate of pay. I tried to make up for it in other ways, things like Kumba, and I, I replaced the ceiling tiles at one point and, you know, I, I taught so that, you know, he could go and do other things. And, you know, you always try to find balance in that structure, the monetary side of things, but I got what I needed. That was part of it. That was me being content. And eventually I lost that because there's politics and all these other things. And I had to replace it with, with different pieces. And I, that's another part of being content is although, yes, I needed that structure of going to martial arts class and doing martial arts and eventually becoming a martialist. It taught me it's not so bad when these things go away. One of the dangerous things we get people into is, you know, we like, like, what makes you happy? Go do what you, you know, go achieve these things and do what makes you happy. What happens when people lose that? We don't talk about that. That's a taboo subject because somebody could be liable for that, right? If, you know, if it was advice, you know, if it was a financial advisor and they told you to like go after your dreams and spend a ton of money on opening a fucking, I don't know, something, some shop that's not going to do well and you do it, your financial advisor might be liable for that advice they gave you. That's where the world of spectrum of professional advice comes from. So in the self-help world and the, the mental health world and the self-awareness world, I'm not saying don't have those conversations, but give people the vehicle of, Hey, what are you going to do when this doesn't work out? My answer to that is content. Again, this isn't advice. This is just my way of understanding things. Do with it what you will. Do your own thinking. Please do your own thinking. When you look at content, content should teach you what happens when those structures disappear, when they break down, when they're not there anymore. 
what can you do? You can be content. It's the middle of the road. Middle of the road can go both ways. It's halfway in between sad and halfway in between happy. It's right there in the center. So you have, you have the quickest, you know, martial arts taught me only put in as much effort as necessary. Be efficient with your movements. The most efficient thing you can do is be halfway between sad and happy. It's quick line. It's quick change to either side. Hop one step to the left, one step to the right. I'm, you know, I'm good to go. You know, we take a step back, take a step forward. I'm always right in the middle. I'm always in between. I don't have to do a lot. It's conserve energy. Conservation of energy is super important in a fight. In a war, actually, conservation of energy is super important from a martialist standpoint. So, you know, we talk about these things in, in Zen and, and Chan, um, specifically in Zen. Some of the canons are written to get an understanding of, I'll use Zen as an example because it's, it's easier to people to get into that Zen mind. It's a good, it's a good catchphrase um, or one of those um, catchwords. Zen, to be Zen-minded. Zen's middle of the road. It's not happy. It's not sad. Right in the middle. A, a true Zen practitioner is not trying to be empty. We're not trying to attain emptiness. We're not necessarily trying to attain enlightenment and attain enlightenment because enlightenment can be spontaneous. So we must be open to it. And to be open to it, you got to be right in the middle. Because enlightenment can be attained through sadness, through happiness, through all sorts of different emotions. There's no true, the Zen mind knows that there's no true road to enlightenment. It's attainable in some methodologies, but also that enlightenment is death. Some people say it's the death of the ego, which is, I don't agree with. I don't think Zen agrees with either, but to attain Satori, to attain death of this mortal coil, because that's, that's what true enlightenment is. And to enlighten yourself of the mortal coil, the truest form of enlightenment. So the truest Zen masters are trying to attain. I shouldn't say truest because it makes others seem not as fulfilled, but the grandest of masters who have gone as far as you could possibly go, their physical body will pass away during Zen meditation. That's as far as you can go. To go so far in your depth of practice of Zen meditation that your physical form perishes and you are released from it. It's to be released from the mortal coil. That is the purest definition of Satori I can think of. To attain enlightenment. And it may be spontaneous. Zen would offer the idea, and I, I say this because they would joke this way because they have very interesting ideas of comedy. And so you're going to get triggered. It's part of the podcast. So here you might get triggered here. Zen would consider a heart attack enlightenment. That's what they were. It was spontaneous enlightenment. Happened out of nowhere. Didn't see it coming. Died. Released of the mortal coil. That would be a definition of enlightenment. It's a poor definition of enlightenment in some cases, but and they would say that comically. That would be delivered comically. It'd be like a canon that that happened to, um, I don't know. They would write it so that it would happen to an individual who had nearly attained all of their dreams and wants, and then that happened. 
that would be their that would, like a canonical writing or an uh, analogical writing of how to attain enlightenment might be that story. You know, I'm not going to write it. They would write it out very, it would be like a six page essay on like this merchant, you know, raising a family and getting all these things they wanted. And then just as they were right about to attain their last perfect business deal, they had a heart attack. That would be a canonical writing about spontaneous meditation, uh, spontaneous enlightenment. So that's the way I came to understand content was through my Tai Chi practice and through the idea of both Zen and Chan because um, they kind of combine themselves into what's known as Chen style Tai Chi, which was the final version of the well, final um, system of Tai Chi I learned was Chen style. I started with Yang style. I've seen um, Sun style. I never really practiced it, but Chen style Tai Chi is my final practice system in the Tai Chi, tai chi methodology. And it taught me middle ground, middle road. Be centered in everything. To be centered in martial practice is to be able to quickly interact with all forces of all energies and all ideas and methodologies and philosophies. It's, it's to be open while also being closed. That's yin-yang. It is the practice of yin-yang. And remember, yin and yang, you can't really separate them. It's always yin-yang. There is no there is no just yin and there's no just yang. It's yin-yang. And they are both two sides of the same coin. But they are a magical representation of the coin. The truest idea of yin-yang is not to understand yin it's not to understand yang. It's to understand that they represent all things and that all things are connected and all things are a coin. So the more yin-yang coins you get to collect and put in your purse, your old coin purse, the wiser you become, the more zen you become, the more chan you become, the more enlightened you become. Because the more you understand each of the combinations of yin-yang, light, dark, female, male, hard, soft, wealthy, poor, all of the dipoles, specifically the ones we use in modern society to separate people, black, white, yellow, brown, wealthy, not wealthy, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, South, North, East, West. To, you know, you, you can create as many dipoles as you want. They're dipoles. They're a measurement of a coin. So the more coins you understand, the more yin-yang combinations you understand, the less that can be used against you. The more understanding you have of the whole subject, the whole structure, the more Zen you become. Amazing Zen practitioners of antiquity were those who found the hilarity in the spontaneous or found the upsetting side of elation. They were able to 
take themselves in a self-awareness standpoint and both understand each side, yin-yang, didn't matter, whatever coin was presented, emotions. They could both understand pure exalted happiness and the most crushing sadness. They could simulate that in their minds. Remember how I talk about everything's war and war is first a simulation of the mind. That's what Zen practitioners are doing. It's not necessarily that there are staring meditations and there is um, Zazen meditation to be empty, but to be empty is to be open. There's constant duality of triality there. So they make themselves open to the possibility and then they can greater understand the extremes so that they don't have to go through them to be unfazable. That is the way of the warrior in some cases when we look at um, mental training for a warrior. I, I guess I can put it that way. You're going to be subjected to some horrible shit. It's to not react. And you don't react by desensitizing yourself to the possibilities. So where that goes awry in modern society, my personal opinion, is we constantly desensitize people to horrible shit only on one side of the equation, one side of yin-yang, or without proper explanation of what that really means for them that if you are desensitized, it should be in a process in which desensitization is the balance. Everything has to balance itself. So what is it balancing out? In the warrior's mind, it balanced out the idea that you or the person next to you may get stabbed, shot, mutilated, inviscerated, the smells you were going to smell on the battlefield were going to be fucking horrible. The pain is unimaginable. The cries, the sadness, the anger, the rage, all of these things are so extreme. That's what war does. It brings out the greatest of extremes. That if you react to them, you were also probably going to experience death. You were going to die. Because if you reacted poorly to specifically like when we talk about um, maybe like the Roman legions or back in sword and shield fighting or even, you know, bows and arrows, if the person next to you reacted badly, that was probably going to get you killed as well. Or if you reacted badly to the person next to you dying, that was probably going to get you killed as well. Cause now your, your protection to your right or your left doesn't exist anymore. That's where training comes in. That's, you know, that's why warriors train as much as they do. And that goes all the way up to, you know, I use war as an extreme example in some cases to get people to think about that. But even in martial combat, you know, where death really isn't, you know, the sought after outcome, it's a knockout or um, a decision, you know, if we're talking about like the UFC or something along those lines, the training is to not react to getting hit in the face. You want to teach a fighter how to fight, teach them what to do after they get fucking knocked in the face with a fist or a foot or something they weren't expecting to not panic. 
that's one of the most important things you teach a warrior is just to not panic, to go through these things time and time again so that you know how to react to them by not reacting. Because the worst thing you can do is react. Worst thing you can do when getting hit in the face is to tense up, is to just force everything you against, can against that punch. Because what happens then is a, that's how knockouts occur. A knockout occurs when the brain tissue bounces against the cranium. You have a nice little floaty space in between your gray matter and your skull with this nice cranial fluid that keeps everything cushy. And when you shake your head back and forth, your brain doesn't actually contact the skull or the, the hard bone part. Um, when it does, the brain shuts down. So a knockout typically occurs when somebody gets hit in the jaw and their head shakes and it shakes so violently that their brain material actually bounces off the inside of their skull and the whole system goes, nope, and just shuts you down because it has to protect itself because brain swelling is death. Like you're going to die if you know, you have too much of a swelling. It's why concussions can be very dangerous. So, if you wanted to knock someone out easier, you make sure they fight against that, that the, the whip of the, you know, when they contact into your fist or kick or whatever it happens to be, that they're coming into contact with it. So you get that bounce in the brain or you catch them off guard enough that their head spins one way or the other. That's how knockouts occur. That's why you see a lot of on the button, right on the tip of the chin, that's what we call the button. Um, from a jab can cause a knockout. If you ever watched a video of someone backpedaling, so walking backwards and throwing straight punches in front of them, and they're just laying people out, that's how it occurs the easiest because people walk into the punch, their chin goes straight down, and as their chin contacts their chest, the front of their brain bounces off the front of their skull on the inside. Knockout every time. So you teach people to not do that. You teach them not to tense up. One of the best things you can do in a car accident, don't lock up, don't tense up. I found that out the, bat, or the hard way, broke my femur. Trying to stop the engine block. Was successful, but the exchange I paid for the, you know, the, 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 the exchange there was, how much do you want to stop that engine block coming through the firewall? All of it. What are you willing to pay? At the time, I wasn't really sure, but I paid, break my femur. That was the that was the exchange that I made. I laugh about it now. It wasn't very funny back then, but um, that's what I talk about when I talk about exchanges of putting things objectively into what's the transaction. That's content. Is that's the Zen mind of how much do you need or want? You know, if you're getting your needs, how much do you need? What are you willing to pay for it? What are you willing to do for it? How much do you like? How much of this do you want? If it's a want, how much of the want is there? What are you willing to do to pay for it? So there's a, there's a transaction to contentness. It's measurable, both objectivity, objectively and subjectively. And subjectively, I feel it's best to use the objective. You get what you need, not what you want. And you can use that self awareness, mental health, financially. You can use that throughout your entire life in all respects of your life because they're two sides of the same coin needs and wants they counteract each other it seems like you know oh, but I'm getting something in both cases here so it's, it's weighted one side no it's, it's just it's a yin yang proposal and that's 
that's the truest art of Tai Chi is to look at the yin yang proposal. Um, I think I, I don't remember which episode, unfortunately, but at one point in time in this podcast, I talked about the Tai Chi diagram and I believe it was the episode eight um, choice. It might've been episode nine change, but I think I, I talked about it in both, but I think I brought up the diagram actually in, in episode eight choice and actually broke it down. Tai Chi starts from what's the coin? Okay. Now something's going to happen. There's going to be an occurrence transaction of some sort. What part of the transaction needs to be balanced? Is there too much yin, too much yang? How do we balance it? In a martial situation, in a combat situation, Tai Chi does that. Typically taking into account a bunch of different things. What's my size versus my opponent's size? What's my opponent's emotional state? What kind of power are they developing? Where's their drive? Where's their balance point? You know, an easy way to look at it is um, in Tai Chi, what I used to use in grappling is a lot. There's a lot of grappling systems out there to combat all grappling systems. I worked with the principal ideas of Tai Chi and I found it effective to use the methodology of control two of the minor points or control one of the major points. And the two major points are the head and the waist. And the, the four minor points are each arm and each leg. So you have the, the four appendages, the core trunk, which happens at the waist, and then the head, which is the top of the, the trunk there. You can control someone's head. You can typically control their entire body. If you can control someone's waist, you don't have complete control like you have with the head, but you have a lot of control of how you can move the body. If you can control two of the appendages, specifically at, at the hip or shoulder, you can also control the body. Um, it's much easier to demonstrate this physically than it is to explain it with words. But when it comes to grappling, if you use that methodology, you can combat all grappling systems. You can also at the same time understand the core structure of a transaction. So I can break someone's crease, which is uh, right at where your leg bends at the hip, that crease you get. If you break that, you break the structure of the body. They'll just fall over. So you can meet a transaction with the destruction of their core or their balance points. So you, you can look at all these things, you know, and you can find the balance before the transaction even happens. You can understand that, oh, if I just, this is where it's going to occur. I, I'm, I'm funneling down, I'm narrowing down all the possibilities to this occurring. And once this occurs, I can find the balance in it. And that's the truest nature of combative Tai Chi. It's, it's a very interesting system and I'll stop waxing poetically about it. But it was a big part of my life when it came to finding content. Because once I started looking at my needs and my wants, the transactions that needed occur to occur for those things to happen, both in a positive or negative, that you know, it's all a Tai Chi coin. Then I learned to understand the coins, understand yin yang. And that changed everything from a mental perspective. Once you can start looking at yin yang and you can start understanding the exchanges that happen and how they're all just coins. They're just 
two sides of that same coin and you start understanding those coins. Then you play this bigger game of all the coins and how they interplay. And this is actually the deepest level you can go to when you talk about the five element system in Chinese traditional medicine or Chinese martial arts is without understanding yin yang and that yin yang is a coin system. And it's just, you're just measuring two sides of the same coin. You actually can't transact in the asymmetrical, asymmetrical, asymmetrical balance of the five element system, wood, water, earth, metal, and fire. Because each of those has the same amount of coins. It's all the yin yang transactions and you can transact then against them, but it's five points. It's a pentagon. So the transactions themselves will have to be balanced one way or the other, never equal as a whole, but asymmetrically equal in their unilateral or lateral transactions. Think pentagram and uh, five point star construction, destruction cycles. Very interesting system. But until you understand that yin yang system of, oh, this is how those things transact to make up the coin, you can't understand the transactions themselves. That's needs to wants. You need to understand the balance between yin and yang. That is, you need food, shelter, water. You need mental stability and or control over your emotional states to better understand yourself, to gain more self-awareness, which will allow you to progress in any educational form you want about learning about other or a spiritual nature to give yourself purpose. Once you understand those coin structures, the needs, you can start defining your wants and how you can transact to get them. Um, I'm sure I'll get into this at a deeper level in another episode, but for now, I think that's a good place to leave this one as far as we're talking about when it comes to content. Remember, content, we look at, I'm looking at in mental health and self-awareness using the adjective or verb definition from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Um, objective, adjective is it's contented or satisfied. Leave that one aside. Let's really look at the verb definition. We're going to start with the second definition from Merriam-Webster's and add it to the first. The second is to limit oneself in requirements, desires, or actions, whereas the first definition of the verb of content is to appease the desires of. So we're going to limit oneself in the requirements or the actions or the desires so that we can appease those desires a little bit easier, make the transactions a little bit smaller, a little bit easier, more balanced, easier to work with. Because we're not just transacting at one level. We're transacting at multiple levels, but the needs level is the most important. It's the one right up front. That is the paycheck. It's the paycheck big enough to pay for the mortgage, to pay for the rent, to get the domicile, to have the water, to have the shelter, to have the fire, to, you know, prepare the food so we can have, the, is the paycheck enough to pay for that food? Those are the needs and wants. I'm sorry. Those are the needs. They're up front. That's the first transactional level. That's to limit those as much as possible so that they're easier to have. Because once they're easier to have, you can then branch out into the wants world, which is the next layer of transactions. And that next layer of transactions goes into the idea of motivations and understandings to give us a base level of measurement, that idea of being content so that we can find what makes us okay. Not great, not perfect, just okay. And to also understand that it's it's okay to be okay. Just I'm just okay. I'm, 
No, no complaints. Good. Just everything's balanced, working. And then working in that set range so that we can move that range into that second layer of transactions to gain our wants, to get better self-awareness, get a stronger um, subjective and objective mental health, to get what we need, not what we want, first, so that we can eventually attain what we want to better grow and, um, and just be what we want to be, right? To give us that option, to have opportunity. And I call this the middle of the road. If I'm, if I'm halfway through my, to my destination, I'm equally close to home and equally as close to my destination. If I'm halfway, halfway in between sad and happy, I can go either way. Very easy decision to make. Sad or happy, I can pick it. It's not too far away. Balance everything out. It's the middle of the road. That's one I'll, I'll leave with this. Uh, there's a Zen Cohen about uh, a master who's just decides he's going to go to a different school and lecture. And he's on his way. And I don't know if this is actually canonical. Someone actually just told me this. So please don't look this one up and expect it to be there. I think it was just a Zen teacher who came, a lot of Zen teachers like to come up with their own canonical writings, their own Cohen's. So this teacher was expressing to me, a Zen teacher decides to go on a journey to another school to not only teach at their school because they have a friend there they're going to teach, but also to learn. So they start off on their journey and halfway there, they find a rest point, just, you know, a small little restaurant serving, you know, tea and some dumplings and just a nice little place to stay. And out back of that place, they have this lovely pond with a beautiful tree. And it's just a, a very nice place to be very content, very, very, they didn't say content, but I'm saying content here. Just a very, just a nice, comfortable place to be. So the Zen master stays. So it's a, you know, it's an inn of sorts. And they can stay there. And so they stay one night thinking, okay, tomorrow I'll start my journey. And the Zen master gets an amazing night of sleep. Just so restful, so relaxed. It's a beautiful night. It's very comfortable. The weather's perfect. It's, you know, it's not too far up the mountain hill. It's, it's, it's not all the way down in the valley. It's like a great altitude to be, you know, get good restful sleep at. Just very nice, peaceful. It's very calm there. There's not a lot of things going on. It's, it's, it's kind of out of the way. So like, you know, they don't get a lot of traffic, but there was, you know, some, some interesting people to talk to that night before, you know, they were done with their night. They had, you know, good, good bottle of sake and, you know, got to just get a good, good night's sleep. So they stay one night and they wake up in the morning and the breakfast is amazing. It's, oh, it's just such a wonderful breakfast. And then the innkeeper says, oh, we're an onsen as well. And for, uh, for those of you who don't know what an onsen is, it's a Japanese hot bath, but a, a natural spring house. And the Zen master had no idea. Oh, this is an amazing revelation to find out that this is also an onsen. Where's the onsen? Oh, it's just slightly up the mountain. So they show the Zen master, oh, if you just take this path up the mountain, there's an amazing bath. So the Zen master heads out and gets halfway up this um, winding path up the mountain to this amazing onsen bath that they have set up. And there's a rest stop halfway up the mountain. And halfway up the mountain he gets and they sit down on this lovely little bench that happens to be here. And there's a path that kind of leads off into a different direction. And the Zen master gets a little curious because curiosity is an important thing 
to have one in one being a Zen master. So they, you know, they say, oh, I have all day. I'll, I'll mosey down this path first and see what I might find. And so the Zen master starts off down the path and, and not very far off the path, they find a little mini waterfall into a, a nice little pool of water and there's no one around. There's very calm area, very nice. Test the water out. It's oh, it's warm water. Okay, well, this is also this is a spring as well. This is a nice onsen bath. So this master says, you know what? I'm not going to head up to the the bath at the top of the mountain. I'm just going to get my bath here. This seems perfectly good. Has an amazing bath. Very great, comfortable, relaxes. Gets a good meditation session in. Feels great. Feels alive. Leaves the bath and is walking the short way back to the main path. The Zen master meets a group of people walking down from the onsen and you know says hello and has a quick conversation. And then he sees a couple more people. And yes, were you all up at the bath? Like, yeah, it was a little crowded today. So the Zen master stops and says, okay, all right. Well, hey, I got lucky here, right? I didn't have to walk all the way up there and I had this nice bath, peaceful by myself. Had a great time. Goes back to the inn. Same thing. Great meal, good conversation. Bottle of sake, great night's sleep, wakes up the next morning. I'll get a bath before I leave. I know that, you know, well, a lovely place. Goes up, halfway up, middle way up the mountain, finds a nice, you know, finds the bath again. Has a great, relaxing time, comes back down. I'll stay for dinner. It's a great dinner. Had a great time. So over and over again, the Zen master stays and stays and stays and stays because they're content. They didn't need to go teach or learn. They could if they wanted to. They were halfway there. Or if their school at home needed them, they'd come find them. Halfway home. The Zen master was halfway in between everything, but the most content they could be. The, the wasn't happy, wasn't sad. It was just content. Enjoyed living enjoyed being and they were finding every day they were finding new more important coins of the yin yang system more understandings more development of ideas more development of self-awareness more development of zen so they stayed and they stayed and they stayed and yes i've modified that story a little bit but that's kind of how it was presented to me so i wanted to share that with you go please find out what makes you content set your range understand it move it when you need to and, and Get what you need, not what you want, so that you can get what you want eventually. But look at being content before, you know, you go off on the trip that is the Zen practice or, you know, the, this, that, or the other thing. Look at what content can do for you. Because I think it's a better conversation to have. So I'll leave you with that. As always, thank you for listening. You'll hear it in the outro too, but come check us out at taminghindrances.com. Um, if that... Zen story resonated with you in some way, please share your story. Leave us a like or a comment or anything. We're always happy to hear it. And uh, I'll see you on the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening. Come check us out at taminghindrances.com for show notes, links, resources, and more. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or your preferred platform. If you leave us a spiffy review, we might just mention it on the show. Now go be awesome. And just remember to breathe.